Now it is my honor uh, to introduce our speaker for this evening. Colin G. Camel is chairman and president of the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, uh, which in 2007 convened the World Forum on the Future of Democracy. Since then, the foundation has used both technology and face-to-face -face contact uh, to engage thousands of people worldwide in a conversation about the roles, responsibilities, and rights of citizens in a democracy. Uh, his topic this evening is citizenship in a global age. Mr. Camel will uh, discuss the idea of global citizenship and its history, the development of American citizenship, and the challenges and potential of citizenship in the era of globalization. Please join me in welcoming him to deliver the final lecture of the Thompson Forum's 20th anniversary season. Thank you very much, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm delighted to join you. The list of speakers who have preceded me in this forum is surely impressive, and I'm honored by the invitation to be linked with such a distinguished group. I have particularly welcomed the opportunity today to meet with students and local residents on my first, but certainly not last, trip uh, to Nebraska, meeting with the Ian Thompson scholars just before this evening's uh, program was a special honor. They were an extraordinary group of students, knowledgeable, sophisticated about global affairs, and put me in my place. I was really delighted to meet them. You ask, what is the future of democracy? And specifically inquire about citizenship in a global age. These are old questions made new by present circumstances. They're old in the sense that they derive from ancient inquiries into how best to organize society and to live well. They go to the heart of our purpose and experience on this earth, both in philosophical and in practical terms. The scholarly treatise on the citizenship, its history, meaning, challenges, and prospects are legion. But these questions are new, too, because the world is so close hard upon us. A great deal has been written and said about globalization in recent years, with more certainly to come. And rightly so, since that word captures the force and effect of a remarkable confluence of rapid cross-border changes. Technology has virtually destroyed distance. The ability of the individual to acquire and disseminate information, a vital component of freedom, has never been greater. International commerce and global finance, a subject of particular interest these days, and I dare say a high degree of stress, have bound us together in ways that earlier men and women could not have possibly imagined. In a sense, it's hard to find a place for the people of the world to hide from ourselves. You don't necessarily check the newspaper for stock quotes anymore, if they print them at all. Today, you would be just as likely to check the progress of the Tokyo and Hong Kong exchanges to see what's heading our way from across the globe. Our destinies are more globally intertwined than ever before. Events strain the capacity of states to govern and of nature to provide. Yes, events strain the capacity of states to govern and of nature to provide. And the fallout affects each and every one of us. As a result, Americans today have a rare and I would argue compelling opportunity to participate in the development of new global relationships. However, to take effective advantage of that opportunity and to make the most of it will require a higher level of global sensibility than it has been our want as a people. We are interdependent. We may not like it. We may even try to fight it. But to borrow a phrase from Lincoln, we cannot escape ourselves. 
only in this case, ourselves includes everyone on the planet. Where this interdependence is taking us, I think, is hard to say. We're challenged to organize our affairs in the world in ways that work, ways that yield large global answers to large global questions. But a citizen of the world, try and get a passport with that status stamped upon it. True, over the course of the past century or so, there have been many sometimes highly productive efforts to move past the nation-state structure. The League of Nations, the United Nations, NATO, the World Bank, the IMF, G7, G8, G20. And there have been other commendable undertakings aimed at fostering global dialogue and addressing global ills, many with generally salutary effects. But even when times are good, such efforts yield imperfect results. They frequently falter in the face of the domestic pressures on office holders to subordinate global objectives to local political imperatives. Trade agreements immediately come to mind. There is little question that the existing trends favoring worldwide economic integration will continue. But we see daily evidence that economic distress tests public support for such integration. In the 1930s, at a point where international trade was already advanced, people throughout the world looked upon the globalization of commerce and they concluded that the costs outweighed the benefits. It quickly became a challenging period to be a citizen of the world, as it may once again. On the day President Obama flew to London for the G20 conference, the Financial Times ran an ad seeking someone, and I quote, to take part in a global survey on identifying emerging risks. It was illustrated with a photograph of a group of penguins perched on an ice floe. One is jumping off, and the rest appear to be waiting to see how it goes. And I recall during the recent World Economic Forum at Davos in Switzerland, one participant described as being slumped in a chair, saying that in the present dire circumstances, with national economies struggling and global finance on life support, they were trying to work a global crisis with national tools. Exactly. So that assessment leads me to want to share some thoughts on citizenship more generally, and then offer some optimism on the specific subject of global citizenship, optimism tempered by realism. And let me start by noting that this question of citizenship, its definition, its possibilities, its dangers, and its promise, lay at the core of why more than 80 years ago, a man from New York, whose name was synonymous with the power of American capital and global influence, took interest in a small, sleepy provincial town in eastern Virginia. He not only took the, an interest in it, he proceeded to restore and reconstruct the place in the hope and the expectation that his countrymen would gain from it. The man was John D. Rockefeller, Jr. The town was Williamsburg, capital of the largest English-speaking colony in the Western Hemisphere and a prominent venue, 18th century revolutionary fervor. Mr. Rockefeller had a clear objective in mind in making this investment, that the future would learn from the past that the cause of American citizenship, so central to the functioning of our democratic republic, would be well served and strengthened by telling the stories of how we became the nation we are today, and by telling that story to millions of visitors. And that telling those stories in the setting where so much of the actual history was made would give force and meaning to the message being conveyed. As president of the foundation Mr. Rockefeller created to achieve a bold objective, I come to this question of citizenship honestly and enthusiastically, because citizenship is what we do at Colonial Williamsburg. Now, I'm quick to say, you can certainly visit Williamsburg and have a good time, and we offer many amenities to make sure that will happen. 
But once you arrive in town, we will endeavor by all the means at our disposal to eliminate that remarkable period of time when America made the world anew. You know, it's a bit of an odd dichotomy. Williamsburg was restored in order to capture a formative, crucial period in the development of American democratic values and national consciousness. But the more we labor to understand the political challenge faced by the residents of Williamsburg during that incredible period, the more we realize how much their experience resembles our own, especially on the subject of citizenship. Because the basic human dynamic endures today. Who rules? Who is ruled? Who participates in these decisions? Now, these are not new lines of inquiry. Athens wrestled with the same question. What is a citizen? Aristotle suggested, well, birth suffices as a pretty good entry point for the membership in a society, for citizenship. But then comes the problem of new citizens born elsewhere. And that's when it got complicated. And it's been complicated ever since. And even if you're fortunate enough to become a citizen, what then? Are there expectations, privileges, rights, duties? We frequently talk about the skills of the ruler. Is there a set of skills for the ruled? For the ancient Greeks, model citizenship was realized in the context of a given polis or a city. Your allegiance as a citizen was inward and specific, not global and general common defense, institutions of justice, administration of civil society. These were your highest concerns. The good citizen was first and foremost, if not entirely, consumed with being a good Athenian. Yet even then, there were currents of thought that said, yes, we understand that perspective, but does inwardly directed citizenship allow for the full development of humanity? Consider a speech in Plato's Protagoras as the sophist Hippias speaks to a group of Athenians and foreigners. Gentlemen present, I regard you all as kinsmen, familiars, and fellow citizens, by nature and not by convention. For like is by nature akin to like, while convention which is a tyrant over human beings, forces many things contrary to nature. Was Plato saying that the moral, natural state of human affairs has us all as kinsmen, as fellow citizens? Perhaps. But did it translate that way in common practice? No. It did not then, and it does not now. Yet the ideal of fellow citizenship remains. We see the sense of it. We certainly appreciate the allure of it, a global band of brothers or sisters. But it's just hard getting there. And history tells us that, too, in some terrible illustrations. For instance, the late 18th, early 19th century French idea of citizenship took off in some quite unfortunate directions, to say the least all in the name of liberty, equality, and fraternity. Principles, especially when they are fresh, says historian Eugene Weber, enhance the natural ferocity of mankind. The idea took hold that citizenship could work so long as all the citizens thought alike. The equality rapidly lost its allure. You may remember that line from Gilbert and Sullivan, when everybody's somebody, nobody's anybody. Or as Professor Weber put it, if I'm as good as you, you are no better than I, and will not be allowed to be if you are. The guillotine, he says, was the perfect symbol of this kind of leveling. In the next century, Germany and Italy took citizenship to another extreme. The Hitler Youth was a form of civic education. It was violent, destructive, 
but from all accounts, it got everyone to read off the same page. Now, the United States has avoided the extremes of the Europeans on the subject of citizenship. We came into national being with high ideals and settled upon a constitution that embraced those ideals. We look back and find the father of our country, George Washington, in 1790, responding to the inquiry of a congregation of a Newport, Rhode Island synagogue. Happily, he wrote them, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens. Yes, we would be bound together in common defense, united in common, shared, and equal rights. So what happens 67 years later? The United States Supreme Court rules that people of African descent imported into the United States and held as slaves and their descendants, whether or not they were slaves, were not legal persons and could never be citizens of the United States the Dred Scott decision. That ruling, in part, contributes to America's greatest catastrophe, a murderous war redeemed only by the sense in the aftermath that we had achieved a definition of citizenship more consistent with the nation's founding principles. And then came the great waves of immigration, along with new divisions and new arguments not as violent, as violent, not as traumatic, but more enduring, because we're still arguing about immigration even now. The late, brilliant political scientist Samuel Huntington sparked an intellectual firestorm five years ago by asserting that there is a core American identity shaped by dissenting Anglo-Protestantism. After all, he pointed out, the first Americans were settlers, not immigrants. America was created by 17th and 18th century settlers who were overwhelmingly white, British, and Protestant. Their values, their institutions, and their culture, he argued, provided the foundation for and shaped the development of the United States in the following centuries. They initially defined America in terms of race, ethnicity, culture, and religion. Well, things have changed, he conceded. Americans now see and endorse their country as multi-ethnic and multiracial. As a result, American identity, identity is now defined in terms of culture and creed. And then he goes on to say that the essentials of that founding culture remained the bedrock of U.S. identity, however, at least until the last decades of the 20th century. Would the United States be the country that it has been and that it largely remains today if it had been settled in the 17th and 18th centuries, not by British Protestants, but by French, Spanish, or Portuguese Catholics? Huntington's answer was clearly no. It would not be the United States. It would be Quebec, Mexico, or Brazil. Well, that argument met with a considerable, often vigorous, rebuttal. His assumptions were challenged, his conclusions contested. You can decide for yourself how you view this argument, but its pedigree runs deep into our national history. It's not going away, and with the economy in recession, with increasingly fierce competition for limited resources and limited employment opportunities, the issue becomes even more difficult to address. During the previous session of this series, I gather from something I saw on television that the audience enjoyed a rather lively debate on immigration. If no one threw a punch, it was a good day for a democracy. Well, that, by the way, is the essence of what I think is the good news. And there is good news, because one thing we may continue to hold up to the world as an object of admiration is the system. Yes, the system, for the distinctiveness of the American Revolution did not rest in the ideas so much as it did in the implementation. 
Years ago, Yale historian R.R. R. Palmer observed that the forms of government at the time of the revolution, whether by contract or consent, or by adhering to natural law, positive law, fundamental law, they were all familiar to Europeans from whence these ideas emerged. No, says Palmer, the most distinctive work of the revolution was in finding a method and furnishing a model for putting these ideas into practical effect. Brown University professor Gordon Wood echoes this observation. The building of this permanent foundation for freedom, he writes, thus became the essence of the revolution, this permanent foundation for freedom. The founders came up with a structure, a framework, a methodology, which was vital because democracy is not self-executing. You have to work at it all the time without stop. We can't let up on ourselves, not ever. But now, as the world spins on its axis, we confront a set of circumstances, generally referred to as globalization, that pose new challenges to the concept of citizenship, which has, until now, almost entirely been realized in the context of nation states. But at the outset, I urge you to keep two points in mind. One, it's not that new. President Theodore Roosevelt became the first American to win the Nobel Peace Prize in 1906 for his work in the negotiations that led to the Treaty of Portsmouth, ending the Russo-Japanese War. And it was this same Roosevelt who waved goodbye from the shores of the Norfolk Naval Base in Virginia in December 1907 as the great white fleet set out to circumnavigate the globe, a sort of floating steel message to the world that America had arrived and expected to take part. We became deeply engaged in the world, militarily and economically, more than a century ago, thoroughly abandoning George Washington's admonition not to become engaged in foreign entanglements. Second, I turned on the television recently to see the irrepressible Lou Dobbs announce on CNN the results of one of his surveys, which I find somewhat lopsided, saying that 93% of Americans fear that our sovereignty is endangered by current global developments. This fear, to the extent that it actually exists, strikes me as unfounded. To engage the world effectively, to achieve some meaningful sense of global citizenship, does not involve the abandonment of national sovereignty. To the contrary, we approach global citizenship in the hope and the expectation that the effort will help preserve and protect our national sovereignty. Now that may sound conceptually idealistic, but global citizenship is grounded in clear-headed, unambiguous self-interest. I think we should accept the reality that nation states and the international state system will remain the key players in the global arena. But it has become abundantly clear that no single one of the new or traditional players in this arena is capable of addressing transnational problems on its own. President Obama neatly summed it up at the conclusion of the London G20 conference when he said that international relations were easy when it was just Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill in a room talking over brandy. But that's not the world we live in now. And actually, it has not been for quite a while. And by the way, the commitment of the Cooper Foundation and the Ian e. Thompson Forum reflects that fact. Indeed, I would be remiss in not expressing my admiration for the 20 years of good work undertaken by this forum. What you do here is inherently good for democracy. For the very act of promoting civic discourse and engaging issues of citizenship is, I think, a contribution to citizenship itself. It's a lament often heard that Americans' awareness of our national history much less the history of democracies generally, and of international affairs has fallen off. When the BBC recently invited former ABC network anchor Ted Koppel 
to comment on the G20 meeting, asking him what Americans thought about it, he paused for a moment, and then he said, I doubt if they're thinking about it at all. Now, I think that's a little extreme. I certainly hope so. We can ill afford to remain removed or unaware of how the world thinks, what the world does, and what it all means for us. So with this lecture series, you've made a valuable contribution to expanding global insight and awareness, and I applaud you. What we must do, however, is more than simply talk to each other, and let me use Williamsburg as an example. Few heritage sites anywhere, anywhere are as well established as Colonial Williamsburg. Yet for more, more now than a decade, we've seen the public's interest in our nation's early history flag. If it was just our setting and interpretive programs that seemed to be less appealing, that would be one thing. But the diminution of public interest in history is well documented, and the fate of heritage tourism is directly affected by this trend. So at Colonial Williamsburg, we have been resolved to not be passive in our response. That would violate the community's legacy, of which I spoke earlier, its obligation to the future. So we've been trying new things, employing more creative approaches, all of which fall under the rough heading of active engagement. In a nutshell, we're more focused on stimulating the imagination of our visitors to make it easier for people to picture the world as American colonists and revolutionaries saw it. To tell stories, carefully researched, that visitors can identify with, and for a few days at least, become a part of. And after all, colonial America was a whole seaboard of human anxieties from New England to Georgia. And once shots were fired on Lexington Green, the colonists fast realized their vulnerability. They were spread out. They were mostly on farms, away from cities. So as a practical matter, public safety was something the colonists did for themselves. And this produced, as you might expect, a division of opinion on the good sense of the entire proposition. It's not surprising, then, that many colonists objected when revolution really took hold. And they leaned in favor of safety. They were English, they said. They honored the crown. It was what they knew. While others saw an escape from tyranny and the promise of independence, of a new social contract. They imagined what might be. And then there were the rest of the colonists, fully a third, who simply wanted to stay out of the line of fire. At the out of the outset of the revolution, you understand, it was very difficult to say how things were going to turn out. It was not a time for certainty, not a time for the faint of heart. And that's what we examine at Colonial Williamsburg, what it was like in the years immediately preceding the revolution, and what it was like up to George Washington's arrival in Williamsburg on his way to final victory in Yorktown. And we started going about it differently, significantly differently. We critiqued ourselves and asked whether there are ways to cut the distance between this generation and the one that made a revolution. Can we make connection between today's American citizens and the first one? Can we, in this way, help people develop a deeper understanding of our founding principles? Can we be more inspiring to young Americans, new Americans, all Americans, even the world? And so we came up with the idea of a revolutionary city, a street theater-like program which involves actor-interpreters highly skilled in performance and well-trained to their historic roles. We charged them with bringing the town to life, the debates in the taverns, running conversations on independence in the gardens, in the shops, wherever and whenever colonists gathered to sort out their differences and to build a future. And to make it work, to make it real, we look for shared markers of experience between 18th and 21st century Americas. And they are not at all hard to find. How about war, race, religion, to name a few? And of course, if you really want Amer modern Americans to bond with their ancestors, you only have to say the word 
taxes, particularly on April 14th. Taxation, not to mention representation, was central to the dispute between colonists and Crown. And the ex sentiments expressed then are not dissimilar to the sentiments expressed now. And the same applies to disputes over religion and public life, threats to peace, the British close in, the Indians on the frontier. We make connections along a wide range of human experience. Very important, we tell the stories of individual community members, black and white, Indian and English, enslaved and free, urban and rural, ordinary residents seeking to make ends meet, to provide and protect their families, to experience life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We tell the stories of how these first citizens came to realize that the future of their growing democracy depended on their participation, on taking part, and on helping to shape the events that would forever change their lives and the lives of generations to come. We make it very clear that the colonists learned by direct experience that being a spectator is not being a citizen or at least a good citizen. And I think it's useful to remind Americans of that obligation to be a good citizen, and it's important that we do so. But today, as essential as it is to be more familiar with our own history and its implications for citizenship, there is clearly a need, and it's demonstrated in the news each and every day, a need for citizens to grasp the new realities in which we live, the realities of globalization, and what it means to be a citizen in this context. And here I am not referring to the legal status of global citizen, so much as I'm emphasizing the importance of opening ourselves to the world beyond our immediate experience, developing a far greater global sensitivity so that we can be good citizens both here at home and in this rapidly shrinking world. And in this sense, Global citizenship rests upon an ideal, an ethical and a moral construct. Just as American citizenship is strengthened by knowing and understanding the stories of the American Revolution and of the intense engagement of the colonists in that activity, so global citizenship, or at least global sensibility, rests on new forms of engagement with world issues. And it all starts with understanding. Are we capable of better understanding other points of view from all corners of the globe? I believe so. After all, in some large measure, understanding and open-mindedness is what has made our American democracy work. Can we broaden our horizons to include points of view of those who are not our neighbors, whose cultures and religions may seem alien, who are loyal to a different flag. Can we learn to appreciate how events and actions, wherever they occur, affect others as well as they affect us? Can we know more about the distinctions among cultures? Can we learn to differentiate their problems, their histories, their hopes, and their aspirations? Well, to borrow a phrase we heard quite frequently last fall, yes, we can. All of the above. But for myself, the answer is yes, we must. Because the world has never been more challenging. Think of the current transnational threats. Terrorism appearing across the globe. The unfortunately closely connected issue of the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. The two together, terrorism and proliferation, are truly frightening. And then there is the cross-border spread of infectious diseases. There is the environment, climate change, energy security, by which I mean access uh, to energy supplies, energy sufficiency, to which I mean its availability. Can't say much at this point about the global economy that isn't being said on the front pages uh, and on the newscasts hour after hour, 
day after day. A tremendous challenge. And then there is a pre the prevention of violent regional conflict constantly reappearing on the radar screen and going to continue to do so. Well, if the logic of global citizenship is peace, and it could hardly exist otherwise, then we must have the practical means to make it work. There are examples. At the highest levels, former presidents Jimmy Carter, George H.W. Bush, and Bill Clinton have shown what can be attempted and achieved. They have been constructively engaged by helping to resolve regional differences, encouraging and monitoring free elections, and in some of the world's poorest nations, supporting infrastructure development, as well as strengthening farming and agribusiness, addressing water and sanitation challenges, supporting healthcare initiatives, and organizing responses to natural disasters. Well, of course, not everyone is a former president. So what about the rest of us? What about average citizens who may wish to engage the world? Can it really be done and in substantive ways? My answer is yes, depending on the circumstances. I think a sterling example is the Peace Corps, now nearly 50 years old and going strong in realizing its mission to help other nations meet their need for trained men and women, and at the same time, and very effectively, to broaden mutual understanding. Nearly 8,000 volunteers in 74 countries right now are collaborating with local residents in education, youth outreach, and community development, the environment, and information technology. Those volunteers are clearly engaging the world and all involved are the better for it. And we also know of situations where non-state actors, as they're called, local grassroots groups, national policy think tanks, international humanitarian and development organizations, all of them are effective in addressing transnational problems. Their work in shaping international norms through advocacy and through public education has become the subject of a burgeoning field of academic and applied analysis. Private corporations also may play a useful role in encouraging international trade agreements and observing international standards, environmental and labor standards, for example, and in building market-based bridges among nations. And the reality is that individual citizens have seen their own reach extended by technology and the vast increase in available information about global, global needs and global issues. Strengthening civil societies in regions where it is weak or suppressed. Protecting threatened natural resources. Tracking the emergence and spread of infectious, infectious diseases are all part of what I call a broadly defined international security agenda. An agenda that is directed at creating a more just, sustainable, and peaceful world. Are such admirable efforts often resigned to the margins as states compete with each other and pursue their own legitimate objectives? Of course they are. But there are places to occupy in those spaces between cold empiricism and normative ideals where progress is being realized. How far does it go? I think history tells us pretty clearly that cultural homogenization is not especially practical, or at least to me, appealing. And even as hard as Europe tries, the strong pull of human identity, even between those who have been bound together in a nation state, English and Scots, Slovaks and Czechs, Walloons and Flemish, even though there is a strong pull of human identity in all of those places, continues to endure. Yet we find our vigorous young president, the personification of harmonious culture and ethnic harmony, speaking in the Alsatian border region of France and Germany to an audience in Strasbourg. I found this fascinating because in two generations, my own and my parents, this has been a locus of violent, tragic conflict where national identity, national possession, national pride were all consuming. But not now, or at least not that day. Instead, President Obama says bonjour 
Guten Tag, and tells the assembled that we've arrived at a moment where each nation and every citizen must choose at last how we respond to a world that has grown smaller and more connected than at any time in its existence. The economic crisis has proven the fact of our interdependence, he says, in the most visible way. Not more than a generation ago, it would have been difficult to imagine that the inability of somebody to pay for a house in Florida could contribute to the failure of the banking system in Iceland. Today, what's difficult to imagine is that we did not act sooner to shape our future. And this is an argument, I believe, for action, a call to a better world, and it does inspire. Or to borrow a line, it feels like morning, where the freshness of the world to be intoxicated us. That line is from a most celebrated global citizen, T.E. Lawrence. But it's also worth repeating the lines that follow. We were wrought up with ideas inexpressible and vaporous, but to be fought for. Yet when we achieved and the new world dawned, the old men came out again and took, us, took from us our victory and remade it in the likeness of the former world they knew. Youth could win, but had not learned to keep. We stammered that we had worked for a new heaven, a new earth, and they thanked us kindly and made their peace. When we are their age, no doubt we shall serve our children so. Well, the realists whisper that it will ever be so. But like many of you, like those students I met with this afternoon, I dream otherwise. Perhaps we may yet make something of global citizenship. History tells us, history implores us to try. Thank you. I do believe my friend Rod Bates is around. Oh, there he is. <laughs> Hi, Rod. Colin, I want to add my thanks, and it's great to have you here in Nebraska. And I heard you say early on you will be back, so we will hold you to that. Had a wonderful time. We have a few questions here for you, and uh, if you haven't filled out a card, you might. We'll, we'll take as much time as we can here. You talked a lot about uh, um, global citizenship. The question here is, how does it balance with cultural traditions? And you've talked on this a bit. Do you think globalization has the potential to erode or even end individual cultures? I do not. Uh, and when I said I did not find homogenization of cultures appealing, I was speaking to that point. Uh, I do not think it's likely or appealing. Uh, and I feel quite strongly about that on both counts. I do not believe uh, that uh, the forces that are, exist in cultures across the globe are going to be changed by economic relationships uh, in the sense of the culture. Uh, and I'm absolutely persuaded that over the longer haul, uh, we will have greater and greater economic integration and very similar amounts of culture identity, uh, cultural identity as we have today. I mentioned uh, the, the Czechs and the Slovaks, the, the, the Flemish and the Walloons. Uh, that's been centuries, and it hasn't changed. And it's not going to change, in my view. And I don't think it needs to change. What it needs to do is people need to understand those cultures, need to work with them, uh, need to realize that there are cultural differences, but that does not preclude us from working effectively together. And that includes, by the way, religious differences uh, in particular, I think. Uh, and that's something that we have not been as strong as a nation on as I think we will be and need to be. Uh, and I'd like to see some real progress on that front. Do you think democracy per se is necessary to foster a globally conscious citizen? Why or why not? I don't think democracy per se, if we mean by that America's form of democracy, 
uh, or other forms that exist elsewhere in the world is necessary for that purpose. Um, the different peoples govern themselves in different ways. International standards cross borders, cross cultures, um, cross ideals, and that's very important. Um, human rights standards is an example uh, in case, I think. Uh, but I, I do not think uh, that at least we need to wait for people to come to the rea realization that the kind of democracy that has served so many countries well and that is serving us so well today uh, needs to be everywhere for us, for us to work effectively together. Uh, I said to the students this afternoon, uh, in response to a very sophisticated question from one of them, uh, that yes, uh, democracy is a continuing experiment in this country, and we should not forget that. And indeed, the argument about citizenship as the means of sustaining our democracy and the importance of citizenship participation to achieve that goal uh, is something that I think is extraordinarily important. But that's different uh, from necessarily imposing it on others uh, in order to work with them. I don't think we need to do that. I'm going to use the privilege of this pulpit to ask a, a question of mine. You have talked uh, quite a bit on your visit here about using technology distance learning and so forth, right. and what Colonial Williamsburg is doing. Do you think there's a gap between generations right now that we need to be very careful of? Is there, I mean, we're seeing newspapers dropping off. It's sort of what our generation's accustomed to, and there's social networks popping up like Twitter and Facebook. Do we have an obligation to get involved and deliver this message of citizenship through new media? Absolutely. I don't think there's any uh, doubt about that at all. If we want to reach the next generations, we have to reach them in their ways. We have to speak in their voice. voice. We have to use their methodologies. Uh, and that's, that's doable. Uh, I'm very comfortable that it's doable. I'm very comfortable that we're in a position uh, where we can, for example, at uh, Colonial Williamsburg, or you can at uh, NET, reach out through technology and get the message of citizenship uh, to people that would not have received that uh, in the past. We have at Colonial Williamsburg now a, a, uh, a blog called icitizenforum.com, all one word, icitizenforum.com, lowercase, by the way. <laughs> and it is an opportunity to discuss citizenship issues across the world. We're going to reach the next generation more effectively with that than with me standing at a podium. I'm very sure of that. And so I think it's really extremely important uh, that we adapt new technologies in public broadcasting, at Colonial Williamsburg, in our schools and our colleges uh, to reach people where they are most comfortable and most effective. And that is in, through technology in most cases today. By the way, Colin was chairman of the PBS board for about five or six years. So. Uh, would you define, one, one person wants to know if you could define global citizenship. What does a global citizen look like? I, I'm reminded that uh, I think it's uh, Marsha Rice's class with these students has as its final paper, uh, define global citizenship. I'm about to do that. Is that <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, that's where it came from. <laughs> well, what I've tried to say here, uh, Rod, uh, this evening is that I consider global citizenship, global sensibility, and global-mindedness, a term I picked up this afternoon at uh, the class in, at the School of Agricultural and Natural Resources. Um, they're synonymous. Uh, and we're not talking about a legal status of global citizen. We're talking about sensibility to the cultures, the practices, the issues of others across the globe. Uh, and we're not asking people to sacrifice their sovereignty, but to strengthen it by awareness of the world around them. And I think that awareness of the world around, around, around them, that sensibi sensibility toward global issues, is what I consider the critical issue of global citizenship. And that's what I've tried to say this evening. The series this year uh, has been very interesting. And Ted Sorensen was here earlier talking about the value of the United Nations. There's a question here that says, What's going to be the role of the United Nations in the future? Must it change to be effective? Uh, 
well, that's a, that's a, that's a large global question, <laughs> and I'm not sure I have a large answer for it. I can answer the second part. Yes. Uh, the United Nations will have to change. It can't move with the kind of flexibility that a fast-moving world uh, needs to have available. Uh, we have seen that uh, most recently on this issue around the North, North Korean missile. Uh, I think uh, we will see it again and again. It has become uh, almost like a second Brussels, uh, where the European community is uh, tied up uh, with a tremendous bureaucracy. I, I think it's going to take a lot of hard work, insight, uh, to have these international organizations be flexible, be representative of, of global interests, be a place where consensus can be reached, and not be tied up in their bureaucratic methods. And I think that's going to be a very big challenge for the United Nations. It's worth going after because it is an extremely important forum. And I personally would hate to lose it. Uh, but to not lose it, to have it be, be, uh, continue to be an effective organization, it will have to do things differently. Here's a question I'm glad you have to answer. Uh, President Obama raised eyebrows recently when he told Turkish students that the United States is no longer a Christian nation, but a nation of citizens. Do you believe an identity as a Christian nation is a hindrance to your definition of global citizenship? Well, you can go right back um, to Thomas Jefferson uh, and uh, through the values of the founders. Uh, uh, we, I think, have a strong tradition in this country, and we continue to. But do you see it as a hindrance? Is that the question? Mm -hmm. uh, no. I don't. What, what I see is this, the really great importance of understanding that there are other religions in the world, and Islam is obviously uh, the one that the president was addressing in Turkey and that all of us are going to be addressing in the months and years to come, uh, is, is coexistence. How, how do we exist uh, with Islam in ways that we're having difficulty doing now because of its radical branch? Um, and uh, I think that's really quite unfair, and we need to understand Islam better Islam needs to understand the roots of American democracy better. Uh, we need that mutual understanding. I think that's critically important. Uh, but I don't think how we're identified or how they're identified is, is the central point. The central point is that the individual citizens and those that represent the individual citizens understand the differences and develop mutual understanding and respect. Interesting question here. You can put on your legal hat. Since corporations are recognized by law in the United States as individual citizens with rights, should they also be held accountable for the human rights violations they commit? And if so, how do we do that? Ooh. <laughs> well, uh, there's an assumption there about their human rights violations, which I'm not going to uh, buy into. Um, but what I, would, what I would say is that, as I suggested in my remarks, and I didn't mention human rights, I mentioned labor and environmental standards, but corporations that are engaged uh, internationally, and that's more and more of them one way or another, need to develop their standards for working within an international framework on those issues, including on human rights issues. I think that's a, an appropriate expectation uh, for corporations. It, look, anybody's suggesting that's an easy thing to accomplish uh, I'm really not that naive, uh, but it is, it is a great assignment for the corporate community to pay attention to that issue. Someone wants to know uh, your recommendations for steps we need to take toward resolving our immigration dilemma uh, in such a way that we can feel good about, uh, we can feel good as American citizens. Well, uh, I, I'm really not... Uh, I don't think qualified to recommend steps to be taken, I can rec recommend a mindset, uh, which is one we talked again about with the students this afternoon. Uh, the, whatever millions of numbers of uh, illegal immigrants in this country today, 14 million or something of that sort, uh, we're not going to turn that back. So we've got to figure out a way, uh, a way that does two things, um, that recognizes that they're here and some numbers of them will be staying here and at the same time says if they're going to be citizens which is what staying here is all about then they have to go back to a point that starts all the way back with Thomas Jefferson they need to be informed citizens 
They need to be citizens who understand the roots of this country, the values of this country uh, that were established at the time of the American Revolution and the adoption of the Constitution. And we need to get to work on that issue, frankly, not only with uh, those immigrants, uh, but also with new Americans uh, and with all Americans. Uh, my feeling about the condition today of the teaching of history in our schools, American history in particular, uh, is very strong. It's one of the reasons that we aspire at Colonial Williamsburg to change the way history is taught, because we feel so strongly it needs to be changed. It needs to come alive. And it's important because it's critical for people to understand it in order to be participants in the democratic process. And if they aren't participants over the long haul, the process won't work. So from so for me, for me, the critical issue is finding ways to have an informed citizenry and getting past this issue of the people in this country who are not here legally at the moment and how do we work out that process. I don't have the answer to that. I know it's terribly complicated. I know it's highly political. I also know it's urgent to get it resolved. Well, from the sound of the applause, you're starting to get a following here. So here's what we're going to do. Send you back to Colonial Williamsburg. We're going to lock you in the Burgess House. And when you come out, uh, we want you to define the Bill of Rights to become a global citizen. What three rights would you pick and oh, why? Boy. This, this is when I come back. <laughs> well, you got a little time, but we want to know where your head's at right now. <laughs> well, uh, I think... My head is at uh, freedom of religion for some of the reasons I expressed uh, earlier. Uh, it's of freedom of speech, uh, and it's freedom of assembly. That's where the three I'm with at the moment, but I'm subject uh, to further thought when I'm locked in the House of Burgesses. <laughs> we'll expect an answer back. Uh, one. Do you think language is a barrier to global citizenship? Oh, yes, and I, I am really been distressed that uh, the teaching of languages has languished in this country, just like the teaching of history. Uh, and I think that's very unfortunate. I was president of a college for 18 years where we did away with the language requirement. I'm embarrassed. We did reinstitute it, by the way. Uh, but the fact is, it's very important in our world today for people to have a, a, another language, understand the culture that comes from the understanding and learning of the language. And I, I just think it's a highest priority uh, for people to take languages seriously. English, of course, is a more common language now in the world all of the time. But again, just like the homogenization of cultures, the real life of the cultures is going to be among those who speak to other, each other in the same tongue. I'm convinced of that. Here's a question that says, do you believe those who are not as globally connected, such as sub-Saharan Africans, will, will be offered somehow uh, to participate in global citizenship? Well, they've got huge survival problems. Um, and that's the first thing that they uh, need to worry about. Uh, but uh, an organization with which I was associated for um, a number of years and an organization which was founded by Cynthia Milligan's father, among others, uh, the Winrock International Institute for Agricultural Development, is doing just that right now in its training programs in Africa. It's helping people there have a broader sense of the world and how they fit into it as they carry on their menial tasks on the farms or wherever those work, work is. And I know that Marsha White went to, uh, in the Peace Corps, uh, was in Ghana. Uh, yes, uh, there is a special effort underway by the nonprofit organizations, by the Peace Corps, and by others to bring these people into the global world, and they should. I think you've challenged our thinking, but what would it take for global citizenship to evolve from what is either esoteric, academic, political, into a practical reality? What well, has to happen? Well, I, I go back, I think, uh, to the same point. Uh, Global citizenship as a practical reality is global sensibility uh, across the planet. Uh, that's what it takes. It takes a hi highly intense education effort. 
It takes a strong commitment on the part of organizations and individuals to participate in the process of bringing people along who are not there yet um, on this subject. Uh, that's what it takes, uh, and it's really, at the end of the day, a concept where we will function more effectively across the globe if we understand each other, are determined to work with each other, and recognize that peace, peace can only be achieved in the long haul under those circumstances. And that has to be, as I said earlier, the logical result of global citizenship. It has to be peace or it won't work. Colin, one more question, then I'll give you the opportunity to wrap this up. But if you do go back to Colonial Williamsburg, and if you do lock yourself in the House of Burgess, and you come back to us with a, with a formula for global citizenship that would work, and you pick up a following here, would, would we be called colonists? <laughs> I'll give you the final word, and then we'll wrap it up, Colin. After that, I don't know what to say. <laughs> My final word is that I hope uh, that this conversation about global sensibility, global mindedness, global citizenship, citizenship in a global age, whatever way you want to work with those words, uh, has been a useful uh, conversation for all of you. I can tell you in my 24 hours uh, uh, of conversation on this subject uh, here in Nebraska, uh, I am very persuaded uh, that people are interested in it, they want to talk about it, uh, they listen, and they give opinions, and all of that is very useful. I think the questions are a very good sign of just that. So I, I have been thrilled, honored to be uh, the, one of the Thompson le lecturers uh, to close this series this year uh, and to be in Nebraska, and I said at the outset, I'll be back.